Welcome to How Story Works from Chipperish Media. I'm story expert, Lonnie Diane Rich. And I'm concept developer, Dr. Kelly Jones. We're breaking up How Story Works into four seasons following four topics, character, conflict, structure, and magic. This is season one character. Today on How Story Works, the conversation is about character roles, protagonist, antagonist, and supporting. Story is power, and we don't leave power on the table. So let's get to work. Okay, Lonnie Diane Rich. Yes, Dr. Kelly Jones. (laughs) We talked about building characters. Mm -hmm. So we want to do some of that learning reinforcement, kind of hit some of those big high notes again before we jump into today's conversation. You bet. All right. We defined character as any living entity in a story that has sentience and agency. So it is the human element of storytelling. Remembering that everything in a story that has sentience and agency is coded as human, even if it's an anthropomorphized animal or a sentient teapot or an alien or a monster. As long as it has thoughts and feelings, it is coded as human and therefore a character. We also talked about the character triangle, keeping an eye on your strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities and balancing those out. Uh, We talked about the four main sources of vulnerability, fear, identity, love, and shame. And we talked about stealing characters, I'm sorry, sourcing inspiration from existing (laughs) stories that you love and how you can do that without any ethical problems. That's right, because inspiration is good, but plagiarism is not. Absolutely. So I had some homework uh, from Mm -hmm. last week, which was to pick three characters that I love and look at their strengths, weaknesses, vulnerabilities, and names. Mm -hmm. Um, And when I I wrote the homework, I was like, that'll be easy. And then I tried to do the homework, and I said, (laughs) no, this is not easy. Um, So I thought it'd be super fun in a conversation about vulnerability to do my Uh homework live on the air and have you correct me as I go, because that's just fun. Um, So I started with Tara from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, because I love her. Um, I do think her name works. It it always makes me curious about where she's from. I associate Tara as a Southern name or as an Irish name. mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's very pretty, and so is she, so I like it. Yeah, well, last name McClay, I would guess it comes from an Irish background, although we do know there is demon in her her background, so. Or that pesky little made-up demon that you use to keep your women in check, but very true. Um, (laughs) (laughs) That's right. She's not even really demon. She just thinks she's she's demon. demon. I forgot about that horrible patriarchal stuff. Well, spoiling a little bit of Buffy, but it's good. It's worth it. Go on. Yeah, it's good. Oh, God, that's (laughs) such a good episode. So for me, her strengths are, um, of course, she, you know, magic. Tara's a very Mm -hmm. powerful witch. Mm -hmm. Um, She has real insight and she has amazing empathy and compassion. Mm -hmm. For weaknesses, I was thinking insecurity. Um, especially when we first meet her, you know, Tara doesn't speak up much. Yeah, she has a lack of confidence in herself. Yeah, I think. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think that empathy and compassion, and again, like, you know, some strengths go brought too far can become weaknesses, you know, mm-hmm. um, in that because she has so much empathy and so much compassion, that she doesn't always necessarily speak up when maybe she should, she doesn't stand up for herself, um, when yeah. maybe she should. Um, so I think she gets a little bit of that. Yeah. And then for vulnerability, I guess I was thinking at first, especially was belonging Mm -hmm. for her um, Mm -hmm. until we get to that episode of family 
Um, mm-hmm. And then her love for Willow, that mm-hmm. becomes, you know, a real vulnerability for her. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, it's definitely big vulnerability for her. Okay. So then I was like, who is the opposite of Tara in the <laughs> Buffyverse? It's like Lila Morgan. Lila, Lila Morgan. From Angel the series. From Angel. Mm-hmm. Who I also love for very mm-hmm. different reasons. So strengths, uh, brains, badassery, snark, style, strength. Like, <laughs> she's amazing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Weaknesses. I was like, does cold brutality count as a weakness if she's evil? Like, She's evil. I don't know if that's, right. I don't think that's well, an actual weakness. For her, I think from her perspective, it's not. I think from her perspective, it is, um, it adds to her strength because she knows what she is and she doesn't yeah. spend time worrying and whimpering about, am I a good person? That said, I also think that it damages her ability to be close with other people. And it also, I think, um, makes it hard for her to understand, you know, like her, the thing, I guess, where she is surprised and where people, you know, like, uh, get the better of her is when she underestimates how much people love each other. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that can sometimes be a weakness for her because she, that vulnerability, she will avoid vulnerability in all ways. And part of that means avoiding love because love is in and of itself a vulnerability. So here she has a life built without love and human closeness. And I think that's got to be a weakness. Yeah. So then her fear of vulnerability becomes her vulnerability. Yes. And a nice little ironic twist. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think her name is perfect. Yes. (laughs) Lila Lila Mm -hmm. is the perfect name for that character. Mm -hmm. Um. So then my third character is Doctor Who, mm-hmm. whose real name we don't get yeah, ever because mm-hmm. it's a big secret. So like the true name may actually be a weakness for yeah. the Doctor. Mm-hmm. Strengths, uh, Time Lord, um, <laughs> compassion, like they literally have two hearts, mm-hmm. um, you know, power, mm-hmm. humor, inside, all of those things. Like, yeah. It's just, so much more than than human but still very human mm-hmm. um weakness that that power can become a weakness mm-hmm. um and i think the doctor has a lot of heartbreak that yeah. lines up with all of that love and compassion that they have mm-hmm. and vulnerability um you know isolation and being the last of their kind yeah i think mm-hmm. is a big vulnerability for the doctor and I think the doctor feels personally, I mean, he goes around or they go around because now we find out that he is gender fluid. They are gender fluid. So I kind of like that. Um, yeah. They go around the universe just trying to rescue people, just trying to prevent bad things from happening or undo bad things, depending on where they go in time, you know, um, which is a pursuit that is endless, you're trying to yeah. stop bad things and reverse bad things. And you have all of history to travel and bounce back and forth in, in which to do it. Um, that is a Sisyphusian task uh, that will never, ever be done. Um, so that's got to be real tough, too. Oh, that's interesting. Because then for the time, for the time mm-hmm. lord, time yeah. can be a strength, weakness and vulnerability. All of them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. so good. Yeah. So, so good. Okay, cool. Well, I did my homework. Very um, good. And then good job. <laughs> when when I went through my sum- my summary and reflection, uh, mm-hmm. I had a question. Yes. 
So I was thinking about, you know, character versus non-character. And I agree mm-hmm. with your definition, right? Mm-hmm. That a character has to have thoughts and emotions, mm-hmm. some kind of agency, something. Yeah. Um, but then I was really curious, like, is there a name for a non-character entity, artifact, something that through some sign of, I don't know, personality or maybe a character's love for that thing mm-hmm. or its role in the story takes on meaning, presence, importance, mm-hmm. and all the examples I thought of were vehicles. <laughs> like, right. Because I was like, okay, well, if the Bentley from Good Omens is not a character, what is mm-hmm. the Bentley? And right. then I thought about Baby, um, mm-hmm. the Winchester's car from Supernatural. Mm-hmm. Because Supernatural is not Supernatural without that car. Uh-huh. And and then the TARDIS, right, from mm-hmm. Doctor Who. Although at times the TARDIS does, does have agency. So like sometimes, and, and there was an episode where it was brought to life, but like yes. on a mm-hmm. typical episode it operates more of like a vehicle that yeah has some personality so i'm like those things are more than props they're mm-hmm. more than uh, like they're they are a s- essential part of the story they have mm-hmm. a role but not a character so i'm just really curious yeah. about your thoughts um i don't know if there's a word for this i haven't heard it uh so if it was up to me to name it um, I think I probably would call it an avatar, something that represents a human without in itself being human. Mm-hmm. Um, so possibly that, possibly make up a word altogether and call it an anthropomorphoid, right? <laughs> uh, so it is something that is not human, but has these humanized characteristics that call that's anthropomorphization is to give human characteristics to something that is not human. Um so I guess I would call it one of those two things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do not know. I mean, I imagine that there is a word out there for this somewhere, but I could not find it. So if anybody knows it, uh, let me know. But if there isn't a word and it's up to me to coin the term, I think I'm torn between avatar and anthropomorphoid. So everybody tell us what you think we should do. <laughs> Which one okay. do you think we should go on that one? Which is a better <laughs> term for this? I don't know. I think Avatar is easier to say, but it has so many other cultural associations. Um, yeah. And anthropomorphoid is just really tough to say, but that could be part of the fun of it. So I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I don't that's know. true. All right, cool. Well, <laughs> any excuse to make up a term works for me. Yes, right. absolutely. And speaking of terms, mm-hmm. we're going to start talking about character roles. So we need to define our goddamn terms. Oh, I love it. That's my favorite part. <laughs> <laughs> And I know you really love talking about this particular aspect of narrative yes. craft. Yes. We have protagonists and antagonists and supporting characters. So let's yes. start with the protagonist. Okay. Protagonist actually comes from the Greek, uh, proto, which is first, and egon, which is struggle. So first in the struggle, for those of you who are trying to pick up men or ladies, you know, throwing out a little Greek it's always works. <laughs> sure. That'll get you... <laughs> It'll get you some some warm fun times. Um, but anyway, so it's a it comes from the Greek, uh, and the three qualities of a protagonist are that they are a POV character. They don't need to be the only POV character. Um, you can have a protagonist of a story and then have a scene that is in the POV of the antagonist or of a supporting character that has a you know a subplot going on. Um, all of that is fine. But the the big major um, central narrative conflict, which is something that we're 
we're going to talk about when we get to conflict, but that the central narrative conflict, which is the protagonist versus the antagonist, um, is is what defines the main conflict for that story. Um, and that gets way more complicated. We're going to talk about that a lot more depth. For right now, let's just simple it down to that. So for that story, the protagonist is the character through whose eyes we are seeing this conflict, right? That we are, uh, we are seeing this and experiencing this from their perspective. Um, so that's the first thing is that they are a POV character. Uh, they are active. So when you say POV character, that's like the point of view from I'm sorry, yes, the POV story is written, point right? of view. Okay. I guess I and need when to we, define that too. Yeah. Well, no, but when we say point of view, it's like mm-hmm. whose eyes are you watching the story through? Yes, exactly. So those that's okay. the character through whom you are experiencing the story, the character who has your sympathy in the story mm-hmm. that you are riding through the story with. Um, that this character, okay, so POV character is the first quality of a protagonist that defines a protagonist. Uh, the second quality is that they are in active pursuit of a goal that provides the motive force for the story. It is their goal uh, that they are in pursuit of, which is in conflict with the antagonist goal that provides that spine for the structure and the conflict of the story story. Um, And they have the most at stake if the battle is lost. Even if it isn't actual literal life and death, it should feel like life and death. That's how important this should be for that protagonist. Um, So the protagonist really carries the weight of the story. The reader rides through the story on the back of the protagonist. So the protagonist needs not just to have strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities, as we've talked about, not just to have these three qualities, POV character, inactive pursuit of a goal that provides the motive force for the story and the most at stake if that battle is lost. Um, But they also need to be compelling. They need to be somebody that we want to spend this time with, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I say compelling, um, there is an extrapolation of that that we find a lot, especially um, women writers writing women characters will often get this feedback. So I am speaking specifically To anybody who gets this feedback, but definitely to women, Uh, your protagonist does not need to be likable. People will tell you that she needs to be likable, and that is not the case. Now, sometimes that'll happen with men, too, but I'm saying I see it happen a lot with women. Um, Mm -hmm. So here's the thing, and a lot with female characters, too. Um, They do not need to be likable. They need to be sympathetic. And when we stop giving the world, quote unquote, likable female characters, we will train the world to stop expecting us to be so goddamn likable all the time, right? She has to be sweet. She has to be nice. She has to really, really want the money, but only so that she can give it away to orphaned kittens or whatever. It's this kind of nonsense that we have with our female characters in the same world that we are openly allowed to have Don Drapers and Walter Whites and complicated uh, you know, male characters who are less than heroic, less than mm-hmm. likable, right? We're mm-hmm. allowed to have those, but female characters have to suddenly be people that you, you know, want to have lunch with or go shopping with. And that's not necessarily the case. Um, so anybody who tells you that a, a protagonist of any kind, male or female or gender non-binary or whatever, needs to be likable, give that a serious side eye. They don't. They need to be sympathetic. They need to be yeah. compelling. We need to have a sense 
sense of their vulnerability. Because again, as we talked about last week, vulnerability is how we connect with each other. It is when we know each other's vulnerabilities that we become sympathetic to each other as humans. And we have a human relationship with these characters that we read in our fiction. Um, So that is how we access these characters as well. So in order for a character to be compelling and sympathetic, we need to have a sense of that character's vulnerability. Um, It is, like I said last week, the most important vertex in the character triangle. Uh, But also vulnerability is like salt. A little goes a long way. So don't fall into the (laughs) idea that if a little vulnerability is good, then a lot is better. A lot of vulnerability is not better. It is confusing. Now, as I say that, um, if you have a character that is in a long-term story, like a TV series or a book series, something that is more than one movie, one television episode, that kind of thing, right? Um, you will find them traveling through a series of vulnerabilities, but usually with only one at a time. All right. Mm -hmm. So you can have a character that has a lot of different vulnerabilities as they move through their story arc. And that's fine. But one at a time, too much vulnerability is just too much. It's like, you know, when you think about the nerves in your teeth getting jangled, it's a little bit like that. Um, It just it becomes almost too much after a while. Um, So one vulnerability that is strong at a time is great. And that's all you need. Um, so there are four main places that you can hunt for vulnerability. We talked about this a little bit last week. Fear. Um, what is your protagonist afraid of? Is there trauma in their past that makes it hard for them to do certain things or interact with certain things? Um, and for fear to work as a vulnerability, it has to be a serious, real fear. I'm not a fan of snakes or spiders, but it doesn't keep me inside my house unable to leave. Um, mm-hmm. So if fear is interfering with your character's ability to live their life, that can be a real source of vulnerability. If it's humiliating, if it's embarrassing, if it if it causes them social problems, that can be a real vulnerability for them that is based in that fear. I think Lila, the example of Lila as a fear of vulnerability being her vulnerability, I think that that's something where you can play with that fear and actually bring that in as a vulnerability. Yeah, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, identity is another source of vulnerability and it is fantastic it is so much fun to play with Um, it is a very very rich source of vulnerability and it comes down to if I am not this thing then what am I right Mm -hmm. if you have a story where Superman loses his powers what is he right? Um, And Woody in Toy Story is all about identity. That is an identity story, right? If I am not Andy's favorite toy, what am I, right? Because that is how he identifies. So does that also work for the opposite? If I am this thing, who am I? For like that fear of maybe, you know, realizing a new part of identity or coming up to something that challenges Absolutely. If I'm in love with a monster, like if I'm in love with somebody and I discover that they're a monster, what does that say about me? Right. Mm -hmm. You know, um, that kind of thing. Absolutely. Um, You know, and you can that identity can come in and, you know, um, stories about sexual identity can be a fearful mm-hmm. thing. Um, you know, when when you're realizing something about yourself that is something that can put you in a vulnerable position, um, that can be really difficult if you think that whatever it is that you are is something that will not be acceptable to other people. That can be a real source of, of vulnerability, okay. absolutely. So if it's fear of someone finding out 
your identity, then that's still an identity vulnerability, not a fear vulnerability. I think it's based in identity more than it is in fear. You know, yeah. okay. um, if it's well, okay, no, if if you're secure with your identity, and it's fear of somebody finding out, then yeah, that would be the fear. Um, if your identity is a vulnerability when you struggle with it, when it is a it is representative of an internal conflict within yourself. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Yeah. So if it's something where um, you grew up, you know, believing or like part of a cult or something. Right. And then when you realize that all of that is not true, who am I? Right. If I don't believe this thing and that is such a huge part of my identity, who am I? You know, mm-hmm. um, that is a, an incredibly destabilizing identity is, is it's central to what we believe we are. If you're a cop, and you get fired, right? And you are no longer a cop. What am I, right? Whatever it is that you identify as, um, those are the things that can really be a huge, huge source of um, of of vulnerability for us. And that can happen a lot. I mean, a coming of age story is an identity crisis. You know, Mm -hmm. you were a child, now you're an adult. And how are you handling that transition? That is an identity vulnerability. Um, And so we see that happening a lot in those kinds of stories as well. Okay. Yeah, because like when I was thinking about we like we had talked about Tara from Buffy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when she was, you know, believed she was part demon and she was very afraid, she was more afraid of her friend's reaction mm-hmm. to that than to yes. actually being part demon. Yeah, she had accepted so, that she was part demon. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. So I'm like, hmm. Okay. So that's yeah, more so I think that the would be fear more, yes. of identity discovery, like fear of mm-hmm. judgment. Yeah. Um, yeah. Although I think that I think that she struggled a little bit with the reality of that or with what she believed that reality to be what her horrible, horrible family had told her, which was that she would eventually yeah. become a monster. You know, yeah. so I mean, as she was afraid of that, I think internally that she would become bad, you know, right. Um, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I guess my I guess my thinking out loud here is that these these areas of vulnerability can be interwoven oh yes absolutely they can overlap they are not in any way super distinct and they're this isn't an exhaustive list either it's just that most areas of vulnerability are going to kind of track in one of these places and when you're writing it's a it's a great place to start looking to start thinking about these things you know what is my character afraid of um how do they identify and how does that define who they are and and what would happen if i took away that identity um you know who do they love right love being a huge source of vulnerability Although we see this probably most commonly. Um, uh, but you have to be a bit careful with this one because it leads to a lot of damseling um, and a lot of fridging, uh, especially mm-hmm. because this is the one that we feel safe to provide as a vulnerability for men. And in our, you know, heteronormative stories that we have been tending to tell for the most part culturally, which is a bad thing. More diverse writers, more diverse stories, all of that. We need it. Um, what happens is that because we feel like it's a threat to masculinity to have a man be afraid of anything or be insecure about his identity we tend to put the love vulnerability on those characters when um when we when we want to have a vulnerability that is quote unquote acceptable for a man um and that will lead to his woman being fridged so uh that is when a, a female character exists and is killed solely to motivate the male character's story arc um the damseling putting the woman in danger where she 
she sits and cries in a crate that's tied to the railroad tracks somewhere until her hero can come and save her, that kind of thing. Um, but the, at the source of the love vulnerability, um, I think is it, there's a lot of rich material there at that source because love is a huge vulnerability for all of us. We would die for the people that we love, for the people that matter to us. Um, there's also loving somebody who doesn't love you back. That is a huge source of vulnerability. And also that ends up bleeding into fear, right? Especially when we have a character like, say, CD from Roxanne which was mm. the, I want to say 1987, it was in the 80s at some point, Steve Martin movie that was a retelling of Cyrano de Bergerac. He was in love with Roxanne. He couldn't get up the courage to tell her. So he told her pretending to be the good looking town bartender, you know, um, so she, he would give the bartender all the good words. The bartender would give it to Roxanne. The bartender would get in bed with Roxanne and CD would sit there just, you know, feeling jealous and terrible. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, so that's, stems from a fear and it's it's love that and, and the fear of not being loved back created the vulnerability upon which that entire story is based um so um when a character loses someone they love again that is where we move into fridging territory um and uh, when someone beloved is in danger that is damseling territory so it's just one of those things you got to be careful of I'm not saying you can't do it so you have to be real careful how you do it yeah. <laughs> so um and then there's shame you know, um, shame is a really, really rich source of vulnerability. Um, we talk a lot about the Buffyverse because uh, that is a lot of what we do over here at Chipperish. We uh, do the Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast, Still Pretty. Kelly and I just finished the Angel the Series podcast, Still Dead. Um, and a huge source of the main character, Angel's vulnerability, is that he is deeply, deeply ashamed of his past as a murderous vampire. And that sometimes, depending on how we decide to write a particular curse in the story, um, he will again become this murderous, evil person, vampire. And he always has that demon within him, even when he's trying to be good. So he always knows that he is a danger to the people around him, to the people that he loves. Um, and he always carries that guilt and that deep, deep shame about who he really is. And of course, that does bleed over into identity as well. You know, who is he? Is he Angel? Mm -hmm. Is he Angelus? Is he Liam, the drunken layabout that he was before he got turned as a vampire? Um, you know, his sense of, of his identity and how that identity can be taken away from him you know, at any moment is um, is a huge, you know, fear for him as well. So we've got fear, identity, love, shame, all of these kind of wound into that duality of identity for Angel. Um, and that fuels his vulnerability for an entire run of a television series. So it does pretty well. Um, yeah. It also makes him a little broody. <laughs> you know, um, so that can be a problem with that character. Um, but a person's shame is is so deeply personal, um, and it's probably, honestly, one of the most powerful sources of vulnerability in storytelling. Um, and the thing about shame, and the thing about vulnerability in general, is that vulnerability is something that people don't talk about. Characters mm -hmm. don't talk about. Nobody walks up to you and they're like, "Hey, it's Tuesday. How are you doing?" By the way, my deep vulnerability and shame is this. The characters <laughs> never talk about it. These are things that we pick up from context um, that we pick up uh, as part of the story, but a character is never like, as a matter of fact, we can tell 
what a character's vulnerability and shame is by the things that they refuse to talk about. But if you get close to them, they change the subject. Um, so those are the things that, that we can uh, we can really feel like that is a sore spot for them. So all of these things, all of these things that your character is vulnerable about are things that they will not talk about. I'm only with the people that they are closest to that they trust deeply. Um, will they talk about those things or if they absolutely have to? Um, um, so vulnerability is really kind of fun to write and interesting to write because it has to be, what is the thing you don't talk about? <laughs> what is mm. the thing you don't talk about directly? But you act out on behalf of, and that is how you write vulnerability. It's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. No, it really, really is. And it's helpful, even though there is a lot of overlap between mm -hmm. those four big buckets, it's still really yeah. helpful to have. Like if you're trying to build this character and think, Right. Where and you can pick along any of those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Where does that vulnerability come from and mm -hmm. how does it tie into the, the sense? Do you have a sense like when you're building a character and you're thinking about strengths, weaknesses and vulnerabilities, is there a place that you typically start or is it just kind of an organic part of imagining that person's personality and story? Um, it, it comes fairly natural to me um, to write in that vulnerability. I write from a place of emotion anyway. Um, mm -hmm. And so figuring out where a character is vulnerable, that's where I connect with them. And that's where I get most interested in them. Um, but generally, this is the kind of thing... Most of what I teach in narrative theory for writers is the kind of thing that um, I don't really want. It's really hard. I don't really think it benefits you until you're in the revision phase, until you've finished writing, whatever it is. Then you look at it and you're like, okay, this thing is broken, right? This character is not connecting, you know, with your beta readers or you recognize it as a writer. And then you go in and you apply narrative theory to it to say, how can I fix this? Right. Okay. Um, but if something ain't broke, don't fix it. Right. You know? But if like you it, don't yeah. know, like if you can't list strengths, vulnerabilities and weaknesses for a character when you're drafting, you should just write anyway. Yes, absolutely. You should just write. Just write that character, you know, probably on an instinctive level. Um, mm -hmm. And I personally find now some writers are different and every writer is different. Every writer needs different things. For myself, I personally find that all of this stuff gets in the way and I become way too self-conscious of my writing when I'm writing. I write best when I write from an instinctive place. When I'm in revision and everything is down on paper, then I can go go back and be like, you know what, this character doesn't have vulnerability. I'm not connecting with this character. My beta readers are not connecting with this character. Where can I give this character vulnerability? How do I give them vulnerability? And then I would think about, okay, what are they afraid of? What is their identity? You know, what do they love? Mm -hmm. What is their shame? I'll think along those lines and then try to build that in through. Um, so that's the kind of thing that it's good for analysis. When you're doing analytical work, you are working with a piece of material that's already finished. You know, when something is in process, it's a lot harder to work with because it's a lot more amorphous and there may be things 
things that you're writing your way to. So in the beginning, you may not have a sense of that character's vulnerability, but say by the midpoint or by the the second act turn, uh, you do have a strong sense of it and you're writing with it there. And then you can just go back and refresh the beginning and make that match up. Um, So some writers like to have all of their ducks in a row ahead of time, in which case Mazel Tov, absolutely go for it. I think that's great. Um, But in that case, I think what you want to do is, um, you know, is go ahead and look at these things ahead of time and then think about them in these terms. But for a lot of writers, that can be a stumbling block. So I just want to make sure that that's clear, that not every writer needs this narrative theory at the same phase in their writing. So it really, really depends. Um, And you know what's best for you, you know, for yourself personally as a writer. Okay. Yeah, I think that's really helpful because it helps me just to remind myself, if you don't know the answer to this yet, that's okay. You may write your way there. You may be able to go back and see it when you're, Mm -hmm. you know, looking at what you have and and starting to edit. But yeah, if you don't know, just maybe write until you figure it out. Um, But then it's always great to go back and look for those things and add them in and plug them in and strengthen your story that way. Absolutely. You can do that. And one really great thing to do is to tie your vulnerability into your central narrative conflict. Again, we are going to talk much, much more detail about central narrative conflict. Uh, For right now, those of you who have been studying with me do have a sense of what that is. Um, But the central narrative conflict is the protagonist against the the antagonist. It's that Mm -hmm. central conflict lock. Um, So tying your vulnerability into that. And again, I can go back to like Woody from Toy Story, right? His, Mm -hmm. His vulnerability is about his identity. If I'm not Andy's favorite toy, then who am I? Um, So that locks into his central narrative conflict, which is an internal conflict with himself that he wants to be a good toy, which is a toy that does the best thing for his owner, um, and also wants to be Andy's favorite toy, which means that he has to get rid of Andy's current favorite toy, which is in conflict with being a good toy. Um, So Woody's central narrative conflict within himself is tied deeply into this sense of identity vulnerability. Um, And it's actually really brilliantly done. Um, But it helps a lot um, when you can tie that central narrative conflict into that vulnerability, because that means that every movement of your story is going to be tweaking that vulnerability. And that's what you want. You want to really torture those characters. Okay, that makes sense. So -hmm. we've talked about the protagonist as a single character. Yes. Mm -hmm. What about like team stories? Or is there a group protagonist? And how does that work? Absolutely. A group protagonist happens whenever you've got a group of people who are all working together toward the same goal. Usually there will be one main protagonist within that group. Like we've talked quite a bit, not on this I don't know if I've talked about it much in this series and how story works, but I know I've talked about it in a lot of my other podcasts, the idea of the five-man band, right? Mm-hmm. You've got your hero, um, who is your main protagonist. Then you've got the lancer, who is the best friend, the one who corrects the hero um, and keeps the hero in line. Uh, then you've got your smart guy, your big guy, and your what they uh, commonly call the chick Uh, which I object to, uh, so I call it the heart, um, Mm -hmm. which is the person who is emotionally connected and keeps the team emotionally connected. So you have these five people who all work together um, in these different roles um, that uh, that will will function as a group protagonist. And so um, if there is any weakness within your main protagonist, uh, sometimes a group protagonist will shore that up a little bit. Um, For instance, in Dodgeball, um, we have a main character of Peter LaFleur who uh, doesn't care 
Like, you know, he's he's our POV character. We're definitely seeing things through his perspective. Um, you know, he ha- has the most to lose because um, he's going to lose his gym if if they lose this fight and they don't make the money from the dodgeball tournament that they need to save the gym. Um, but he's ready to let it go in the beginning. Like, he just honestly doesn't care. And through most of it, he doesn't care. And his actual uh, internal, um, you know, problem that they're trying to arc him through is that he doesn't like to care about things because when you care about things, you get disappointed. Uh, that is buried deep in Dodgeball because uh, Dodgeball is a comedy and it is mostly interested in hitting Justin Long in the head with a wrench. That is mostly what it's interested <laughs> in doing, uh, which is fine. I enjoy that. I enjoy that part of Dodgeball. But Peter LaFleur makes a weak protagonist because he doesn't care. But because the group around him cares so deeply and he cares about them um they shore up that part of his um of his weakness in character now the reason why he has that weakness is so that he can arc from somebody who is too afraid to care vulnerability he's afraid to care about things um into somebody who is brave enough to actually give a shit um not particularly well done I'm not sure that they they if you look at the cost benefit analysis of having that weak protagonist with so that you can have a character arc that isn't really fully realized throughout the run of the story is that really worth it I think that's a question you have to ask but that's a circumstance where the group protagonist holds up that central narrative conflict well enough that you can get through it and the story still works and you're still invested when you're reading it okay cool all right, awesome. So when we have a protagonist, we need an antagonist. Oh, yeah. What's an antagonist? Okay, well, an antagonist, again, we've got anti, which is against, and then agon, which is the struggle, and that is Greek. Um, so your antagonist is against the the first of the struggle, the protagonist, so the one who blocks the protagonist. And the thing that is so much fun about the antagonist, which I love, is that your antagonist has one freaking job. Block the protagonist. That's it. While your protagonist needs to be the POV character, they need to, we need to have sympathy for them. They need to be compelling. We need all of these things from our protagonists so that we can ride through the story on their back, you know, and they've got to be providing the motive force and they've got to have the most to lose and all that kind of stuff. There's so much stuff with the protagonist that you have to do. Antagonist has one job. Block the protagonist. That's it. And then you can do anything you want with the antagonist, which is what makes them so much fun. There's so much freedom in writing the the antagonist. You can have, I mean, these are just a, a couple of examples of the kinds of antagonists that you can do, but you can do a classic villain antagonist, just someone who is up to no good, who is either after the protagonist specifically, like the evil queen and Snow White, Voldemort coming after Harry Potter, um, who, or who is just up to all measure of badness and the hero good guy protagonist must stop them. You have like Clarice Starling versus Buffalo Bill in Silence of the lambs most of your cop movies fall into into this kind of uh, territory that's a classic villain classic bad guy protagonist just up to no goddamn good right and that's fine you can do that it's no problem but there's so many other fun things that you can do you can do a sympathetic antagonist which is an antagonist we can identify with and like not a bad person usually just someone doing their job like if you look
look at U.S. Marshal Samuel Gerard in The Fugitive. He is the antagonist for that movie. Uh, Richard Kimball is trying to stay free so that he can find out who killed his wife. When he comes up against Samuel Gerard, he says, I didn't kill my wife. And Samuel Gerard says, I don't care. Not his <laughs> job. His job is to put this guy in jail. The justice system is not his problem, right? Um, so I love that moment in that movie. But also I love how much I love Samuel Gerard in that movie. He's mm-hmm. really fun. He's fun to follow. He's fun to watch. You love him. You like him. You know, um, it's a lot of fun. So that's a really fun example of a sympathetic antagonist. Uh, we also have benevolent antagonists. Benevolent antagonist is someone who loves our protagonist and believes that what they're doing is even the best thing for the protagonist, but is nevertheless blocking the protagonist. Often these characters are like parents who want what's best for their kid. And although it's not the central narrative conflict in Whippet, and again, we'll talk about this later, um, the mother character is a benevolent antagonist force in the life of Bliss Cavender in the movie Whippet. Um, A mother Gothel entangled actually presents as a benevolent antagonist. Mother knows best. She just wants what's best for you, Um, but is in fact, underneath it all, a classic villain antagonist. Antagonist. So those things can get confused sometimes. But any character who genuinely wants what's best for the protagonist but is still blocking them, that's a benevolent antagonist, which is so much fun to write. Um, a doppelganger antagonist is so much fun. Um, antagonist and protagonist are reflections of each other, um, often only separated by like one fatal choice. You have Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon in Game of Thrones season one. Ned Stark and Robert Baratheon, when they were young, they were warriors. They were going out. They were doing all this stuff together. But Robert Baratheon wanted power and Ned Stark did not. And that's what separated them and made them different to the point where at the beginning of the Game of Thrones season one, Robert Baratheon is pulling Ned Stark back into the intrigue of palace court life and power. And Ned wants none of it, but he's forced into it because Baratheon's the king and he's asking him to do it. So that's a really fun uh, doppelganger antagonist. Um, we have a small, um, small protagonist antagonist, uh, small letter, um, small a, small p, um, and Rebecca Bunch and Audra Levine from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. These are two kids who both grew up in the same environment and were pitted against each other uh, when they were young in constant competition. And so they are essentially two reflections of each other. Audra, the character that went one way with her life, and Rebecca, the character character that rejected all of those things. Um, and, uh, and so that's a lot of fun. Um, and even Buffy and Faith, the two slayers in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, are, are doppelganger antagonists for each other. They have so many similarities. And yet, because of some choices that were made, uh, they diverge. Um, so that's a lot of fun, too. Um, and then there's also the internal antagonist, which is one of my favorites. This is when a character wants two things that are in conflict with each other. And so we have a, a and internal antagonism that's actually fueling the story. And again, Woody from Toy Story is a great example of this. I've already explained how his internal antagonism works. Um, he wants to be a good toy, but he also wants to be Andy's favorite toy, and he can't be both at this point. Um, so that's a lot of fun, too. And that's just a few examples of the kinds of things that you can do with antagonists. I mean, really, that whole field is wide open. They have one job, one job. They got to block the protagonist. That's it. I love it. I love that. And yeah, I'm I'm a big fan of the internal antagonist story too. Yeah. Um which is just fascinating, right? With mm-hmm. all the ways we block ourselves and how we oh. can 
Absolutely. And internal antagonism has this wonderful, rich, crunchy space for the psychology of the character, which is so much fun to get into. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, really cool. Um, And I I do think it's, well, we'll talk about this in a second, but when we were talking about protagonists, you know, you're emphasizing that a protagonist does not have to be likable. Mm-hmm. And it's I think it's equally important that an antagonist does not have to be unlikable. Yes, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So yeah. can you have a group antagonist? Interesting. Yeah, I don't see any reason why you can't. I don't see any reason why you can't. Um, I think that you're always going to have one main, you know, in the same way with like a group uh, protagonist. There's always the hero, right? The hero is the main protagonist. And then there's the sidekicks and the, you know, various flavors and whatever. And you could have a group antagonist in that way where you've got a bunch of people um, working with, you know, as a team with the uh, with the main antagonist. I think that generally, I actually, uh, I think probably Samuel Gerard and his group group of wacky U.S. Uh, marshals, probably <laughs> in The Fugitive, are probably uh, a great example of a group antagonist. They're all working together to take down Richard Kimball. They're all fun. They've got, uh, you know, a group community going together. Typically with our antagonists, because... Um, most often what they're doing is bad. They tend to work alone. (laughs) They tend to to have, uh, they tend to work on their own and they tend to have flying monkeys, right? You know, like little um, people that they will send out to do their fighting for them, to do the dirty work for them. Um, But they themselves are the ones who are in charge and the ones who are actually motivating all of that story movement. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's there's really, there's no narrative reason why you wouldn't be able to have a group antagonist the same way that you have a group protagonist. Um, it's just that usually we don't do that. Um, right. But there's no narrative reason why that wouldn't work in the same way. Yeah. And you want strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities in your antagonist just like you do in your protagonist. Uh, do you need them? No. No. Okay. You can have, okay. <sighs> For narrative function, do you need them? Mm -hmm. No. You can have a Ronin, the accuser, like uh, from Guardians of the Galaxy, which is just, I just want to destroy shit because I want to destroy shit because I'm mad that my dad tried to make peace with you or whatever stupid ass reason that was. Um, Whatever waste of Lee Pace. That's the thing I'm most angry about with Ronan the Accuser is Lee Pace is freaking amazing. You put him in a bunch of blue paint, gave him nothing interesting to do. Uh, I'm still (laughs) angry about that. Um, But yeah, so you can have some. And the thing is, is that narratively, narratively, it's functional. Is it interesting? Is it the best thing that you can do? No, there's you can much, much more interesting things. If you can give an antagonist some sympathy, if Mm -hmm. we can feel for our antagonist, if we can at least see their point of view, even though we know that they're wrong, um, which is most in most cases, they're wrong. We're going to talk a little bit about hero and villain versus antagonist and protagonist, how they are not the same thing. Um, But I think that with any of your main characters, and an antagonist is absolutely a main character. It is central. That character is central to your to your narrative. Um, I think that when you have that, the the why not? Why not make them complex? Why not give them vulnerability? Why not let us connect with them and feel for them um, in one way or another? I mean, it's just going to make your narrative so much better. So the functionally to have a functional narrative, do you absolutely have to have it? No, okay. <laughs> but you sh- I mean, you should. 
You know, yeah. um, if, there's no reason not to add it. You know, there's no reason not to do that. So um, there's no extra calories if you just put some vulnerability <laughs> in there. There's no reason not to. So I would say I highly encourage everybody to do it. But I mean, but I have to say, narratively, is it functional if you just have a bad guy being bad because he likes being bad? Sure, you can make that work. And and in some stories, you know, if you're telling a story that is that has something to say about the nature of good and evil in a way that requires that kind of antagonist, go for it. You know, you can make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. So we have a protagonist and an antagonist. What Uh about supporting characters? Supporting characters are a lot of fun. Um, They fill out the community for your protagonist. And often um, we'll see the kind of story, the, forget it, honey, I work alone, you know, tough guy who ends up arcing toward community. We see that all the time where we've got this loner asshole who doesn't want to work with anybody. And then by the end, he's got found family, right? We're always arcing away from isolation and toward community. Um, And in order to do that, you need supporting characters. You know, you need characters who are family, who are friends, who are co-workers and colleagues, um, because that community defines your protagonist, defines who they are and how the rest of the world feels about them. Um, not to mention the fact that having these supporting characters, like all of the the quirky inhabitants of Stars Hollow, Connecticut, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what is Gilmore Girls without, um, you know, all of these characters, without Emily and Richard and Suki and Jackson and Kirk, right? You know, yeah. Um, so all of these, all of these characters, um, kind of define the your protagonist, defines who they who they are, gives them community. Um, it defines the setting, you know. So um, supporting characters are so much more than just, you know, other characters that are wandering around, their friends, their love interests, their family and co-workers, you know, they define who that who that protagonist is. And, and they'll define your antagonist. You can give your antagonist community and supporting characters as well, like we just talked about. Um, so building all of these characters with strengths, weaknesses, and vulnerabilities of their own um, is really important. Um, but you also have to remember, though, that every character is the hero of their own story. I mean, they can be interested in and even actively engaged in your protagonist's problem, whatever that is. But they're going to read as false if literally the only thing they care about is your protagonist's bullshit, right? You know, um, <laughs> this shows up a lot, I think, in... In in romance fiction, we see this a lot where we have a best friend character, right? And the best friend character sometimes will be a little quirky, you know, but the only thing they care about is whether the protagonist is getting laid enough, you know, like that is literally the only thing they care. Like, who is this man? This man loves you, blah, 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 blah. The the best friend character will often just be that. And they read as flat. They read as false. Um, When you have supporting characters who have their own interests, who have their own priorities, have their own things going on. It's okay that they're involved in the protagonist stuff, you know, that they care, Mm -hmm. but it's not the only thing they care about. It's not the only thing they're there to talk about. It's not the only thing they want to do. And that gives a much, much richer sense of community for your entire, for the whole world that you're building. Um, So that's one of the things that you want to remember with supporting characters. But aside from that, I mean, building these characters the way that you do protagonists, the way that you do a good antagonist, strengths, weaknesses, vulnerabilities, give them interests, 
give them quirks. Um, you know, these are all things that you can do to like kind of give all of these characters color and life and thus giving the world that you're building for your protagonist to run around in some color and life. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was thinking about like, just to kind of a, a, a big cultural reference. One of the things I liked about Harry Potter yeah. was Ron and Hermione mm-hmm. each had their own interests and talents yep. and vulnerabilities and strengths. They weren't mm-hmm. just there to support, you know, the boy who lived. Like, they had yes. lives. Mm-hmm. So they felt like, char- you know, real people in yeah. and of themselves. Um, right. Yeah. And the fact that you're, I mean, because when we're seeing a story through the lens of the protagonist and the protagonist can see everything that their you know that their community is interested in that their people are interested in um it makes them feel less narcissistic right because if yeah. you're if you're in the pov of a character and the only thing that they ever hear from the people around them is me 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 right it gives that character that main character that protagonist character a, a sense of narcissism and you may not even consciously realize that that's how that reads you know as a reader thinking about the fact that i'm seeing this through this character's perspective and the only thing that he hears coming from anybody else is about him you know yeah. um the fact that harry can see and and feel and appreciate um, all of these things coming from Hermione, her interests, um, and what she's doing, the same with Ron. Um, the fact that he can see all of that makes it feel, makes him feel not narcissistic and also makes the world feel much more expansive and less claustrophobic. You get a claustrophobic sense in these stories where everything is always all about the protagonist. Um, it's yeah. just, it's not, it's not good in a lot of ways. Okay. No, that makes sense. And and when we were talking about protagonist and antagonist, mm-hmm. I think this is where synonyms often get used in ways that are confusing yep. and inaccurate because mm-hmm. protagonist, antagonist does not mean hero, villain. Right. No, it doesn't. Hero and villain are archetypes. Um, and mm-hmm. we're going to talk about that next week in a lot more detail. But archetypes basically are about a character's role, their job, the job that they have to do within the story. Um, and uh, and so the archetypes of hero and villain are translated as our good, moral, upstanding good guy. Right. And then our baddie, bad, evil, bad guy. Right. That does bad things, you know. Um, And because we like for our protagonists to be super good guys, we tend to associate protagonists with heroes and antagonists with villains. And that is absolutely not necessary. Your protagonist does not need to be a good person. Um, And you can see that uh, Dr. Horrible. Um, from mm-hmm. Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog. We can see that in Mavis from uh, the movie Young Adult, the Cameron Diaz movie Young Adult. Um, there's also, of course, a classic Walter White in Breaking Bad. Walter White is absolutely our protagonist throughout uh, that story, but he is not a good guy, and he descends deeper and deeper into darkness as he goes through. It's one of the things that makes it so interesting. Um, and so... One of the things that you kind of want to separate out in your head is the idea that your protagonist has to be a good guy and your antagonist has to be a bad guy, has to be a villain. They can be 
And that's mm-hmm. fine. But when you go back to what your protagonist's definition is, they're a POV character. They provide the motive force for the story by pursuit of an active goal. And they have the most at stake if they fail. Nowhere in there does it say they've got to be morally upright. Absolutely mm-hmm. not. Um, and so that gives you a little more fun like a more of a fun place to to play in um, with your protagonist as well. Because, you know, you have so many things that your protagonist has to be, you know, that we have to do with the protagonist. To know that you have a little bit of freedom in this place should actually come as a, as a breath of fresh air. The same way that, the, you know, you don't have to make the antagonist a classic villain type. It can be a benevolent antagonist. It could be a sympathetic antagonist, you know. Um, so that gives you a little more room to play with your protagonist and your antagonist. You want to kind of separate that out in your head. Um, Sometimes, you know, the goal of a story in which a character, you know, a protagonist starts out as like not a great person uh, Mm -hmm. will be to arc the bad guy, you know, the bad guy protagonist to a better place to show, you know, the moral, the moral light to this protagonist to to make them see that their evil ways are wrong and bad. Um, And sometimes, you know, that's the purpose of starting out with a quote unquote bad, you you know, um, protagonist, but not always like Walter White and Breaking Bad just gets worse, you know, as he goes. I mean, the writing is amazing all the way through. Uh, the I am the one who knocks speech is one of the most terrifying, <laughs> beautiful speeches in all of television. Um, but Walter is not arced to goodness. Um, he follows deeper and deeper and deeper into darkness. And that is absolutely OK. He's still our protagonist for that story. I think it gets uh, not quite the same type of darkness, but a similar kind of thing with Don Draper from Mad Men. Um mm-hmm. But Walter White, though, what's interesting about him is that he is identity vulnerability, right? Because he starts out as, you know, a good man who's really, really good at a bad thing, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And then that bad thing gets deeper and deeper within him so that he is at a certain point no longer a good man. And it's also mixed with a love vulnerability. He starts out his motivations in the beginning or to try to take care of his family. Um, And that ties all right into the central conflict, which is why Breaking Bad is so great. (laughs) Really I is. have never seen it. And the more you talk oh. about it, I'm like, I've got to go watch Breaking Bad. I've never it watched is, it. It is difficult. It is not easy watching. I mean, I've avoided it for a really, really long time until enough people recommended it. And I'm really glad that they did because it gives me a lot of fantastic examples to use. Mm-hmm. Um, it is one of the only examples of a well-done fractured tease that I can find. Um, so they do a fractured tease at the beginning of every episode, and I love it. Love it because they do it right. Um, So, yeah, Breaking Bad is um, for anybody who studies story. I would really recommend watching Breaking Bad and taking a good, strong look at the things that it does because it's it's pretty brilliant. But in the same way that our protagonist can be a bad guy, our antagonist can be a good guy. You know, Um, the antagonist has that one job. That's the only thing to block the protagonist. So you can do lots of fun stuff with the antagonist as well, making them fun and sympathetic and interesting and, you know, moral. Um, Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Cool. So do you have any advice for creating workable protagonist antagonist pairings? Oh, God, that's interesting. Um, Do I have any specific advice? I think as long as they have mutually exclusive conflict, um, you're going to be in a good place narratively, like as far as what you have to accomplish narratively. Um, But again, you know, an example that I've used before that can run flat, you know, Peter Quill and Ronan the Accuser from Guardians of the Galaxy 
function narratively, but it's not compelling. It's not that mm -hmm. great, you know. Um, so evil, just to be evil as an antagonist is pretty boring, generally. Um, a doppelganger antagonist, uh, a benevolent antagonist, sympathetic. These are really fun to play with and they can reflect nicely. A doppelganger can reflect really nicely on your protagonist um, that there, but for the for one choice, that could be me. You know, mm -hmm. um, that person on the other on, on the other side could be me. Um, so that can be really, really fun to work with and connecting them in that way. The way that you tie, like ideally, if you tie your protagonist's um, vulnerability into the central narrative conflict somehow, um, being able to tie the antagonist's vulnerability into there too could be a lot of fun because then you're constantly tweaking both of their vulnerabilities. If you've got a vulnerability that makes your antagonist empathetic, then that makes your antagonist that much more interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, and, you know, not to say, again, that you can't write, you know, just the evil, bad antagonists. You can, and they can be fun. They definitely yeah. can be. Um, but they'll be more fun if they're characters that we love to hate. Think Spike from Buffy. Um, you know, he started out as a as a real bad antagonist. He was just evil, you know, um, and then gradually became much more complex and interesting as the show went on. But even in the beginning, when he was just evil, um, mm -hmm. he was funny and he was smart and he had vulnerability. He was in love, you know. Um, so those are all things uh, that that make that work out really well. Also, giving you know, some, some, some mixing those characteristics, I think, with any protagonist um, can be a lot of fun. Um, Michael Scott from The Office, right, is um, a protagonist character, I think, in that in that show. Um, he is awful and he is awkward um, and he is embarrassing and it's cringeworthy to uh, to deal with him. He is a character that is almost solely made up of weaknesses and that makes him really funny and you can do a lot of fun stuff with him. But the thing that I really like liked that they did with Michael Scott is that um, like in the second season, they started highlighting his strengths. Um, they had a scene where he was giving out Halloween candy to little kids and he was wonderful and the kids loved him and delighted in him. Um, we see that he is a really, really good salesman, you know, um, even though he's this cringy, uh, cringy character that is embarrassing to deal with and often says just horrible, sexist, racist things without wanting to. Like, he's doesn't mean to. He doesn't know any better. He's just too stupid, you know? Um, and that makes it really, really tough. But then when you give him these moments of, com of competence, you know, mm -hmm. um, and you see these, like, lovely, sympathetic and likable parts of his personality, it makes it a lot more interesting than somebody who is just full, 100% cringy, you know? Um, so don't be afraid to mix bad things in with your good characters and good things in with your bad characters. I think it just makes them a lot more fun to read and definitely, I think, more fun to write. Um, and vulnerability, I mean, in every character goes a long way. Having a yeah. sense of vulnerability in every character goes a long way. You don't have to do it in any, like, but your protagonist because we need to be able to connect with your protagonist. But mm -hmm. there's no reason not to. Like there's no, yeah. I, I've yet to see a really good reason not to do that with all of your other characters because it just makes for a richer character landscape.
No, it is really fascinating. And it makes me want to go back um, and rewatch Killing Eve to mm-hmm. like really break down the protagonist antagonist relationship in that show because it's so interesting. Um, yeah. And really different than a lot of stories that I've seen. Yeah, so it I'm is wondering, really interesting. Yeah, how much of this comes into play there. So mm-hmm. that might be some separate homework for me. Ooh, um, that could be. Okay, so we talked a little about supporting characters. Do you yes. have any advice for making supporting characters real, like so that they're not flat, making them memorable, important to the story? Um, yeah, I mean, the first thing is just remember always that they are the hero of their own story, like they've got their mm-hmm. own shit going on. And then think about what you want that shit to be. Um, what makes them fun? What makes them um, interesting? Like, uh, you know, I mean, we we tend to define it as quote unquote quirks, you know, mm-hmm. um, and I think giving a character a quirk for quirks sake uh, is going to read false real quick, you know, um, but giving them things, uh, passion that are things that they care about very deeply and caring about things very deeply is also it's a light vulnerability but it's a vulnerability being a big nerd is a vulnerability you know um caring very passionately like for instance um you could take people from your real life you know and use them as um as kind of placeholders you know i was talking about using placeholders for characters like if i had a friend say who was unbelievably passionate about books right <laughs> um and then were to come into a conversation uh just ranting about somebody who had ripped a page out of a book and put a piece of gum in it because why the hell would you ever do that that is not okay and holy shit and never do that and oh my god i would rip their hair out and put gum in that what kind of monster right exactly so (laughs) i don't know if anybody out there has picked up on the fact that i was using you i basically just completely set kelly up for that but that's what i'm talking about right like i could be talking about my thing and you're like but gum you know and when the character here i like you know let's say in my world right i'm the protagonist of my story right so i'm coming in and i'm like i've got this problem this thing's happening you're like oh my god you know and when you have this character who is so passionate about like books or about something right that that is the the lens through which they see everything it can help you kind of uh reframe your character's problems, you know, and like the right. way that your character is looking at their world. Um, and also having some sympathy for um, for that character, you know. Um, so I think that having um, use people that you know in your real life and think about like, what would this person say, you know, if I was talking about this or whatever. And that gives you a sense of like the kinds of things that influence all of us. We are all influenced by our individual passions by the individual things that we care very deeply about. Um, And so making sure that you know what is important to each character um, and what are the things that they are not going to be able to ignore, even in the middle of any kind of crisis. um, (laughs) I think that that can be that can be really fun to play with. And it also gives um, gives a sense of reality to the world that you're building. Um, So I think that that's probably, yeah, probably stealing, stealing the adorable um, passions from people that, you know, the things that you find adorable or whatever, and putting them into your characters can also be really fun. No, that's really great. I was just thinking like, 
if we were in the Buffyverse and there was an apocalypse <laughs> and we were in research mode and we're going yeah. through the books and like the solution is there in the book, but it's cited incorrectly and like the, uh-huh. the footnotes are wrong. I don't care if the world is ending. I'm still going to notice and be pissed off. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Do not fuck up your citations around Dr. Kelly Jones. That will be... There will be throwdown. There's going to be a throwdown. Yeah, yeah. Um, maybe that can just be my fun quirk. Um, and I'm, no, I'm really looking. It. I'm looking forward to talking about this more next week mm-hmm. because we will talk about making characters distinctive, and we'll mm-hmm. talk about archetypes and stereotypes and tropes and personalities and quirks. And yes. I am going to bring in a little bit from the tarot to that discussion. Ooh, I can't so wait. that's going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> Okay, so we have protagonist, antagonist, kind of their requirements, their functions mm-hmm. in the story, supporting characters. Um, for homework, for exercises, I think it might be interesting to pick a story that you like that doesn't follow the stereotypical hero, villain, mm-hmm. protagonist, antagonist. And well, kind of protagonist who's a bad guy. Yeah. 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 Or just something that's, yeah, something that's a little different. Um, Mm -hmm. Or think about the kind of relationships that you like between a protagonist Mm -hmm. and an antagonist. Yeah. Um, You know, and and just kind of see. And then who are some of your favorite supporting characters and why? Mm. I think that might be fun. Yeah. That might be fun homework. So speaking of characters we love. Mm-hmm. We like to close on love what you love. What stories are you into this week? <laughs> you know what? I've gotten caught back up in Survivor. Um, there's a new season of Survivor out now, which is Winners at War, which takes all the winners, or not all of them, but 20 winners from past seasons are coming back to fight it out again. Um, and there's something about Survivor that I really love. It is, of course, a reality show, you know, mm-hmm. but it does have strong narrative at its core that we have one prize and we have 20 different protagonists, you know, from their own perspectives who are fighting for that one thing. It is mutually exclusive, which means if one wins, the other must of necessity lose. Only one can win. Um, And so we see them sorting out into heroes and villains and, um, and yet the constant landscape of the narrative is always shifting depending on who you're sitting with at any particular time and different viewers are going to read as the main protagonist, the one they like the best, the one they want to win. So it almost has this kind of shifting narrative space Mm -hmm. that I love to watch. It is so much fun. And Survivor, I think, has such interesting game mechanics within it that it does to kind of shift things around. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started watching. I watched the first season of the new, uh, the first episode of the new season. And then, of course, now I have to wait for the second episode so I started going back and watching old seasons of Survivor and that has been my obsession this week oh that is so fascinating to me just like like hearing your narrative take on why you like reality shows because just like you don't understand why I like prologues I don't understand why you like reality TV I've never the only reality show I have been able to watch multiple episodes of is RuPaul's Drag Race oh yeah you know, just because RuPaul is amazing. And, mm-hmm. um, but I'm not, I'm not drawn to reality TV at all. But hearing you explain it, like in, in narrative terms. Oh, you should watch. Can I pick a season of Survivor and we can watch it together? I promise to watch one 
and we'll see how it goes. <laughs> I don't think one will get you. It takes okay. more than one. It takes more than one. It's one of those things that you need to invest in. And a bad season of Survivor is still a bad season. All right. Well, you pick um, a but, good season yeah. and I'll watch it with you. But I'm going to be like, really? I'm watching Survivor. All like, right. I don't. All right. Okay. Yeah, well, that, that might something. actually be hilarious. You can make me watch or read something with you, and I'll do that too. Um, so, that it's, so that it's even. But there is something about there is something about Survivor that I will actually go to bat for um, because narratively I find it fascinating. And there are some characters. I mean, these are people, right? But we read them as characters. You know, there are some of them in there that are just so delightful i just love them so much and i could just watch them all day um so yeah it's, it, it can be a lot of fun definitely okay i'll give <laughs> so, it a try <laughs> what are you what are you loving right now so i watched uh roswell new mexico uh-huh which i had never seen before i wasn't did familiar. i tell you yes mm-hmm. and and the only season one is out and i'm like holy shit when is season two like i need to know what happens it's coming very soon i think it's this Next. month yeah. Oh, yeah. I think it's coming really soon. Um, yeah. I was so surprised and delighted by how much I enjoyed it. Oh, yeah. Um, it was it was just it, there is some deep work going on there. Uh-huh. Um, and the uh-huh. actors are fantastic. Mm-hmm. And the, some of the just the cultural things that they're looking at and the way yep. that they're using alien as metaphor. And mm-hmm. oh, my goodness. Um, it's good. It's real it is good. Real good. It is real good. And one of the things that I love about it um, is that it is, <laughs> you know, the first descriptor that comes to mind is millennial melodrama, but mm-hmm. that sounds so dismissive for what I mean. Um, I, I don't know. I'm trying to find a word that really expresses what I mean because. This is one of the first shows where I watched it and I felt that deep emotion during a time in my life where I wasn't feeling a lot of emotion, where I was kind of a little dead inside, you know, but I could watch this show and access emotion, um, which is, is so powerful. And there's there's a tendency that we have, and I think it has a lot to do with the internalized misogyny within our culture that associates emotion with this like weak feminine side or whatever, um, that when we have a television show or any kind of property that really deeply accesses emotion, we tend to dismiss it with the kind of like a melodrama, with that kind of word, like soap opera, right? Mm-hmm. Um And yet the ability to access that kind of emotion through a narrative is such an incredibly powerful thing to be able to do. And um, it deserves real respect. But uh, the words that exist in our, you know, in our cultural like box of language um, for that, I just don't feel like there is a positive word that expresses a narrative that can very strongly evoke real deep emotional resonance you know so i don't have a better word for it but i just i love what it does yeah i do too i had i really really enjoyed that first season and we'll be watching season two as soon as it drops it's coming up soon it's coming yeah, up soon it was real good 
Well, that is it for today. To join in the discussion on Twitter, follow Lonnie at Lonnie Diane Rich and me at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag HowStoryWorks. HowStoryWorks and everything Shipperish Media produces is made free and ad-free by the generous patrons who support us to the tune of a dollar a month or more and make it possible for us to be the heroes of our own stories. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out more. This episode of How Story Works was brought to you by the chipperish media producers who support us on Patreon at the power producer level. These people are the reason why How Story Works is coming to you free and ad-free right now. So thank you to our March producers. Sarah, Shelley, Kristen, Kevin, Alice, Erica, Abigail, West, and Jonathan. And this week's special message for our power producers... Vulnerability is like salt. A little goes a long way. Other ways to show your support? Write a great review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends about the show or tell anyone who tells you to write a more likable character to shove it. (laughs) We'll be back next time with writing distinctive characters. Until then, mix bad into your good characters and good into your bad. Trust me, it'll be fun. Bye.